0: We pass through those periods of time where, you know, we feel like we're opening, we feel like we're interested, but it's like it's an endless, dreary, seems so much the same. Every breath seems the same, every step seems the same, every other yogi on the retreat seems the same. Someone was in the small group describing, oh, Spruce is <laughs> describing her. Walk this morning, I think, and uh, you know how happy she was to stumble upon a pond, you know, and then ev- eventually, of course, she had to turn around, and then she knew everything, you know, it was just the same old road, the same old stones, and how disappointing that can be, even hard to bear. I know that feeling. Like sometimes I won't even take a walk, it's just like just that minor discomfort of having to step on stones when I'm walking. It's like, oh, I just don't want to deal with it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and the, the other thing I just, you know, when my mind's out of balance, that is so apparent, it's like, I'll be in a really nice place. This is a really nice place. Thinking about how nice it would be to be in a really nice place (laughs) over and over. And even knowing that, even catching the mind doing that, you know, isn't enough to break that spell of wanting things to be different. We're in a really good, healthy relationship with somebody, and we imagine being in a really good, healthy relationship with somebody. So this is an example of what happens when the mind is not in balance. <laughs> you know, we're, we're literally um, creating, constructing our suffering. The mind is hindered by its greed and its aversion and its delusion. And so the world looks, appears to be a certain way. And it makes sense for us to cause problems to dig a, a hole and then to fall into it over and over and over again. This is from Ajahn Amaro. Some of you know of him. He's uh, one of the better-known Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition, the Thai Forest tradition. And uh, there they are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: he's now the abbot of Amaravati in England. This is a little subsection in his book, Finding the Missing Piece, called Being the Knowing Heart. According to Buddhist understanding, the quality of awareness or of knowing, the quality of wisdom, utterly fills the heart. It is like a place of stability, or in, a Buddhist, termino- in Buddhist terminology, a place of refuge. So that's sub. Uh, something we can be on the lookout for when there's balance, calm, and that keen interest, that deep desire to see, understand things as they are, what we call wisdom, not content with our conceptual view of things, our preconceived ideas, but wanting uh, a direct, immediate knowing. So one of the characteristics of that is this filling up in the same way, or in the opposite way of feeling empty, like we feel empty so much of the time. As I'm mentioning, you know, when we go through those periods of time where it feels desolate and we think, of course, that it's because the particular objects that we have to see or know somehow aren't satisfactory. You know, the breath isn't satisfactory. The emotions aren't satisfactory. The visual images aren't satisfactory. Auditory experiences is not satisfactory. And in a way, we're blaming our experience, the conditions of our experience, for this feeling of being empty. So then we seek out. We're to the experiences that are available. We crave experiences that we imagine will be satisfying for us. And that's when the mind's out of balance, where there's this arrogant presumption that this is not okay. It's not already here, you know. It's somewhere else, out there. I have to become somebody who has it, who discovers it, who realizes it, because it's not here. And we can be pretty sure of that, that it's not here. And then when the mind comes into balance, you see, it's the balance that is the fullness. It's the way the mind is relating, (coughs) or you could say the goodwill, the inclusivity. You know, it's the qualities of the mind Qualities of the mind that's relating, not what it's relating to, that's so satisfying and filling. As Ajahn Amaro says, the quality of awareness or of knowing, the quality of wisdom, utterly fills the heart. It is like a place of stability, a place of refuge. And then later he says, One is training the heart to rest in that quality of wisdom, or as I'm talking about it, as a balance, so that one can listen to the inner committee, the inner dialogue of feelings, thoughts, and perceptions, or to the external committee, the people outside, and then develop the ability to watch it all arise, abide, and then fade away. One cultivates the heart that is all embracing, that is embracing it all, and remains unconfused by it. So, that feeling of things being desolate and sterile, it's because the mind has concluded it's not already here, this is not okay, and it's disconnected. And being disconnected from this, the only life we have, the only moment there is, well, Of course, we're going to feel disconnected. We're going to feel apart, isolated, alienated, you know, all of those expressions of dukkha. It's not going to feel right. And it's exhausting too because it's unnatural. It takes work to reject things as they are. And this is where he talks about that he says it may seem that this world it may seem that this would have all the emotional appeal of turning oneself into a video camera that one becomes simply a data reception unit registering sights, thoughts and feelings and not becoming involved with them this might sound like disassociation from the world in a cold clinical way But rather, by doing this, one is simply eliminating one's confusion. One is attuning the heart to the reality of the way things are. And that is the richest and most beautiful of experiences. One is attuning the heart to the reality of the way things are. And that is the richest and most beautiful of experiences. So it can be important to ourselves to have some um, positive wor- words or words of support when we are experiencing difficult times and we're trying to be skillful, we're trying to include, we're trying to go beyond our patterns of reactivity and disconnection to remind ourselves that there's only one thing we have to let go of. We're only letting go of wrong view, or ignorance, or the disconnection. We don't have to get rid of anything but ignorance. And, you know, the shadow of ignorance is dukkha, or stress, or suffering. That's the only thing we have to abandon. A lot of times, people get frightened in the practice because they feel like they have to let go of everything. We have to let go of happiness. I have to let go of the sense of self. It's really a misunderstanding. Whenever you think I have to let go of the sense of self, it's a misunderstanding. You don't have to let go of the sense, the sense of self. It already doesn't exist as you imagine it exists.
1: <laughs>
0: All we have to let go of is ignorance. So it, there isn't anything substantial we have to let go of. It's just a misunderstanding, and we use it to scare ourselves, basically to keep from practicing, like it seems too much. It's just this practice is demanding too much of me, I'm sorry, maybe in another lifetime. This is predominant in Asian culture, where a lot of lay people, and even a lot of the monastics, they're not really practicing for freedom. They're really interested in generating merit, studying and doing acts of generosity so that they can be reborn in another lifetime when there's a really good teacher and conditions are more favorable for freedom. Because there's the sense that it's just not available now. It's just too much, demanding too much. So, let me just read a little bit more here. Again, this is that section called Being the Knowing Heart. When we establish the heart in this unattached, non-possessive quality of knowing or wisdom, what we've been talking about is balance, then our actions and our attitudes are guided by this wisdom and by loving kindness, not by reactivity or greed or fear, not by our judgments or self-centeredness. When we see a way to help someone, instantly we help. When we need to be strong, we're strong. When we need to yield, we can yield. When it's necessary to just shut up and do nothing, we shut up. When nothing can be done in a certain situation, we leave matters alone without feeling like we should be doing something. We experience a complete detachment that is wedded to complete attunement. So I'll just say that again, that last sentence. We experience a complete detachment or non-attachment that is wedded to a complete attunement. We could say inclusivity, connection. He goes on, he says, "So so that what guides our actions is sensitivity to time and place. We are not guided by habit or opinion or the dictates of what people around us expect. And then at the end of this chapter, he says, the point is to live as a harmonious human being as a blessing for oneself and others, to make one's life as meaningful as possible. So it's not about meaning, there's no meaning. You know, the Buddha was very clear from his very first Dharma talk on that we have to watch out, not just for attachment to sense experience, attachment to the world, but equally we have to watch out for any nihilistic views creeping in, like nothing matters, It's all empty, you know, that that's equally wrong view. Because it presumes that nothing matters to me. You know, it's still, it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but it's still a self-view. Nothing matters to me. I live, I live in an empty world, you know, where nothing matters. And then the experience is, you know, well, that's a heavy trip. And you know we we can justify all kinds of terrible behaviors. You know everything from you know taking advantage of other people, being violent, to destroying our own life in different ways through addiction or you know any number of ways. So this balance of mind we're cultivating the mind or we're maybe even better we're uncovering the mind uncovering the heart that can open in a way that's satisfying you know it's like the opposite of dukkha dukkha probably one of the better translations of the word dukkha is dissatisfaction you know it's unsatisfying what's unsatisfying unfulfilling And awakening, we're awakening to what is satisfying, what is fulfilling, what's healing, what's complete and whole. In a sense, although it's generally not talked about in this way, what the heart really wants. So that doesn't mean that our practice will always be pleasant, but our life isn't always pleasant. You know, so it's like already we're cycling through difficult times. So the question isn't whether our practice is always pleasant. The question is, are we moving in a direction where life is more satisfying regardless of the particular conditions? There's a sense of wholeness, a sense of ease, a sense of freedom from the experience of alienation, freedom from the experience of nihilism, desperation, neediness, and all the different qualities of a hunger that we run into in our lives. Because, you know, the fact is human beings are willing to go through a lot of pain when there's a carrot at the end of the road, you know. Think about all the work humans have done in the process of civilization. How many fields have been plowed? How many homes and buildings have been built? Roads? Think about all the roads people have built through mountains and swamps just to support commerce I mean it's amazing how hard human beings work so as I mentioned last night if we have a sense like an intuitive sense that this balance uh, uh, with this balance we awaken to something that is deeply enriching and satisfying you know, we'd be willing to get up every morning before our busy days and create conditions where we can reflect on it's already here. You know, is it a hoax or is it already here in some, some accessible way? You know, and to put aside a weekend, a long weekend, or eight days for some of you, to take advantage, you know, of the conditions to have more time, more energy, more support, to contemplate. Is it really already here? Is the happiness that's available truly unconditioned, meaning it's already here, already available? And then, you know, we get... Interested, You know, a little bit like uh, getting on fire with the Dharma as we touch some peace, touch some happiness that's not conditioned, you know, happy for no good reason. <laughs> like sometimes, you know, we'll be in one of those really desolate places. I bet this has happened to many of you, maybe all of you where we've been in a really difficult time. And then right in the middle of that really difficult time, without the reasons for the difficulty going away, just a moment of happiness blossoms right then and there. And it may not last forever, of course, but it's like, now how did that just happen? You know, I mean, there there are causes for it. Like maybe we just stopped, maybe it was so painful, those circumstances we were in, that in a moment, the heart just stopped resisting the difficult circumstances we were facing. And in that abandonment of resistance, because that abandonment was so thorough, we were so exhausted with our resistance to the difficult circumstances in our life, that when we did drop the resistance, we really dropped it, fully dropped it. We really submitted to the difficult situation we're in, and we experienced the fullness and aliveness, a fulfilling presence, or however you want to describe it, that didn't make any sense to us. So generally we don't remember these moments because they don't make sense. It almost can be a betrayal to our drama <laughs> that life is miserable, <laughs> I felt this. One of the more common places for me to feel this is when I'm around people who are really suffering. And I, in a moment, really show up. And and I feel so alive and grateful and uh, whole being there with them. And uh, it's a very beautiful energy. At the same time, this person is in a really difficult place. And they may or may not be there with me in that moment. So it takes a little time. Another time I I meet this experience regularly is when I'm having an argument with my wife. And, uh, you know, it's really difficult and she has her opinions and I have my opinions. And you know how that is when we're in a difficult argument with somebody that we care a lot about and Somehow, it feels threatening that they don't see things like we see things and but but also uh, partly because it's intense i I practice really showing up in those moments so and I think this is true for wind too, you know, where we go in and out of this being a really big problem, something really important may, as central to my life as anything is falling apart, crumbling right before my eyes, you know. And at the same time, feeling so alive and so real and so whole in the moment and, and kind of flipping back and forth between it. Sometimes we're there and we just smile at each other. And then, and then it's like, but we don't want to abandon our point of view.
1: <laughs> it's
0: like we don't trust. I mean, sometimes we do you know and eventually we do and now you know over the years and I think in part because when is is you know a very serious um, seasoned practitioner as well and you know it's like we trust we don't mind going into the depths of hell with each other because over and over again we, we realize it's not a problem it's not uh we don't have to believe the. Uh, we don't have to believe the story that arises because of the intensity of the pain. There may be the intensity of the pain. There may be a story that arises due to that intensity of pain, like the feeling of betrayal or feeling that this person who you expect to really know you just doesn't understand you, or something like that which can be really hurtful at least for me and uh, but then uh, but that, that that idea you know that there's this disconnection she doesn't understand me it's like the heart can include that you know partly because we understand that things are impermanent but it isn't even we're not even laying that out as a you know that's my dharma move this will pass. <laughs> it's not even that that way because that comes out of desperation too. Like, I'm going to reflect on impermanence so that uh, this won't be so painful. So it isn't even that. It's like, even if it wouldn't change, it's okay. That's really the feeling because the mind, the heart, isn't taking refuge in conditions. It's taking refuge in the unconditioned the wholeness, the aliveness it feels isn't because of conditions like the marriage is going well. It's because the mind is relating to the moment in an authentic, whole, unbroken way. It's really alive and real. This is, uh, some of you might know this teacher. He's uh, one of the Dharma heirs of Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, Jacuso Kwang I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his first name. And I think he teaches in uh, Northern California, uh, Sonoma County. This is from my Zen calendar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I actually... <laughs> one of my aversive things I don't like having to read them so I turn it over and they make great like notepads (laughs) but every once in a while like I'll find it as a bookmark and oh there's a quote here (laughs) I like this one he says I'm just here I see the leaves fall in spite of my noisy chattering mind and at the same time I can hear the birds pecking on the roof of the zendo because this person, this dharma, as it is, includes everything. It's a way of being that is soft and flexible and so generous. This is the magnanimous life. So some thoughts about, more specific thoughts about... Um, what we recognize with the balanced mind, like what helps to open it it all up for us. So this is from uh, another British monk in the uh, Ajahn Chah tradition, Thai Forest tradition, Ajahn Sushito. And uh, he talks about three areas that either, three areas of our mind, activity of mind that either support harmony support wisdom or support delusion and stress. So it's just three things to tune into that are always going to be affecting the moment one way or another. So we can look at them and by looking at them or recognizing them, they'll get a sense we'll get a sense of what's being set in motion. You know, whether dukkha is being set in motion or release from dukkha. As I mentioned, I think last night in a way, it's so simple, because there's the mind only has two moves. It can get tight, and it can release the tightness that it's created itself. It only ever releases tightness that it's created itself, it's constructed itself. So that's all the mind, the heart, can do. It has the capacity, we know directly, right, in our experience, our heart, mind, or whatever this is, this mind-body thing is, we know directly from our experience we should all have great confidence that somehow this process can create the experience of stress or dukkha. And because our stress or dukkha isn't continuous, we know that this can also release the experience of stress. Right? So we, everybody have confidence. What else does the mind do, really, of significance? It's either creating stress or releasing stress. You might say, well, sometimes it just doesn't know what it's doing. But actually that's stressful. That's, that is creating stress. Not knowing that you're suffering is suffering. Just because we don't know it doesn't mean it's not suffering. Being disconnected is stressful. Like being disconnected from the fact that we're stressed, that the mind is tight. That itself is a kind of stress. So that keeps it really simple. So there's just stress and the release of the stress that the mind has somehow it really it's it's pretty amazing. It actually one of the reasons the practice is so alivening is it is truly amazing how we create, how the mind constructs suffering, creates stress. Somebody, who was it? Oh, maybe it was Mimi in the small group today. It was just talking about an experience she had, you know, and just seeing how her mind, seemingly out of the blue, you know, created the sense of separation. A, kind of, a judgment arose in her mind, and she just saw it so clearly. That judgment. And uh, so, you know, this is happening all the time where the mind is doing something and then the mind is confused by what it just did. So the mind, uh, a thought, you know, because it causes the conditions, arises in the mind and then the mind is confused by that thought. It gets diluted. It takes that thought to be something that it actually isn't, it's just a thought a natural, a movement of nature, right? Just a movement of causes and conditions, but the mind is confused by it. It takes it to be something that it's not, like it's me, or it's I have to do this, or this is important. It can happen in all sorts of silly ways. You know, you can be going through the food line, and it's amazing the kind of things that arise in our minds that just seem so real. You know, that person's taking too much. There won't be enough left for me. Or, you know, why are we eating this? Why did the cooks choose this? Sloppy Joes, you know. What were they thinking? (laughs) Of course, the other half are saying, Sloppy Joes. (laughs) It's like the ultimate comfort food. Just the ticket. But it's just, what's interesting is like how the mind can get caught by what it's constructed. That's the magical thing. So we're getting energized, excited even, in moments at least, by this amazing talent we have to have a thought, have an opinion, have an experience, and then... uh, get confused by it in a way that all of a sudden we feel very real, life feels very dramatic, and how do we know it's real? Because it hurts. We feel really alive because it hurts. We feel like, you know, I've got something to do because it hurts. It's like even craving, which can be so exciting, you know, wanting something. You know, what we do is we squeeze the heart through craving oh if only if only I could have you know why don't the sisters build one of those really nice redwood hot tubs by the
1: lake
0: I mean can you imagine after the Dharma talk just sitting out there and you'd want the kind of bubbles that aren't so noisy so you could still hear the crickets and you're just sort of sitting there (laughs) I had one of those for uh, five or six years. I forget. I lived out in Berkeley uh, as a young adult, and we had one of those quintessential Berkeley Victorians sort of this sort of neat backyard and a beautiful redwood hot tub. Every night, <laughs> you know, we can imagine all of these things, and then just like. You know how to make Holy Spirit perfect—a perfect (laughs) retreat center, perfect rooms. You know, next time I'm going to get the Hermitage. You see, Craig or Cecilia walking to their very special cabins in the woods. You think next time, you know, and that we puts that squeeze on the heart, right? And the thing is, what we're really attuned to is the possibility of getting it. So we're not noticing that tightness in the heart, that wanting. What we're imagining, actually, is that tightness going away when we get it. That's the hook, isn't it? That's why we play in this world of craving and aversion, because it feels like we're going to get something. This We're actually confused by our imagination. We create the tension of not having the hermitage, and we imagine having it and we get a little taste of what it will feel like not to be tight because we don't have it. You see how crazy that is? (laughs) Because we could already not have this
1: tightness.
0: (laughs) We've constructed the tightness right now, in the moment. It can't be there unless we're doing it right now. Nothing lasts long. So unless we're creating the tightness of wanting right now, it doesn't exist. So the imagined release from that tightness is about something we're creating right now. If we just stopped creating it, we'd have it, and we wouldn't need to have the hermitage or the hot tub or anything other than what it is right now. So we have just these two moves The construction of tension, the construction of dukkha, and not constructing dukkha, which we call release or nirvana or awakening or perfect peace and happiness, completion. That's it. And so, to help us understand or to kind of, you know, because it's all about understanding like how we do this magical thing of constructing suffering. Like, what are the components? We have to see it thoroughly in order to uh, help the mind become disenchanted with that activity. Right now, it's so enchanted with its magic and its imagination. Imagining getting rid of death, you know, not dying. Imagine having everything we want. Imagine getting rid of everything we don't want. We're so intoxicated, enchanted, by that imagining that it's really hard for us to see what we're doing. So that's really the process of practice. That's really the point of the balanced mind. So one of the things we need to see, again, now coming back to what Ajahn Sushito said in his book, He has a nice manual. I don't have it with me now. I think it's the Way of Awareness, something like that. Meditation, a Way of Awakening. Oh, Meditation, a Way of Awakening. Thanks, Jana that you can download. Uh, It's a free distribution book. You can also ask the monastery to mail you a copy. And uh, he talks about just three things to pay attention to. One is to look at our aims. You know, what are we trying to get? Just in general, in our moment, what are we trying to get? And do those aims make sense? You know, so to take a good look at the aims... And to be really honest about them, you know, when, you know, like a lot of the time when we're sitting, the aim is just to get to the end of the set. And just, like when we say that to ourselves, then it's really clear, like, is this a noble aim? Is this an aim, an aspiration that's going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness? And not to judge yourselves for having such a limited aim limited aspiration, but just to be really honest. Because as we notice it more and more through the day, I just want to get to lunch, you know? I just want to be in my room without my roommate coming in for a little while. It's like that is all we want. There's nothing else we aspire to. And just to be honest about it. And then if we start to notice all of these limited wants, one limited want aspiration followed by another... And then it begins to dawn on the mind, oh my God, I'm living my life for these such small things, which I don't have a lot of control over anyway. You know, is that is that really a proper aim for a human life? I mean, just think about how many days of our life the strongest aspiration, motivation was just to get to the end just to get to bed, or just to, you know, get home, just to have this meeting over with. You know, just to get out of my dress clothes and to put on a T-shirt and shorts, you know. You know little things like that can seem more important than anything. And then we just want to see it, that's all. We just want to bring a balanced mind, not to judge ourselves, but just to awaken to our motivation, to our aspiration. And then the other thing to bring our balance mind to, to get interested in, is just like, you know, one of the disconcerting aspects of life is how much of life is co-authored by all these things that are happening in us and around us. You know, thoughts arise, memories arise, somebody shows up, somebody sneezes. And just to notice that vulnerability we have to arisings, to experiences arising around us, in us. And we're just sort of noticing that, again, with a balanced mind. Just letting in how much this life is co-authored by what's arising around us. We see a fish flopping out of the water, and, you know, we could have a mystical experience. You know, it's just a fish eating a bug. <laughs> but it's like, they're fishing the lake. I'm not diminishing it, but it's just just to notice the, like what happens when things happen or other things that we react to. Somebody sneezes, and then we're sure we're going to get that cold. Or somebody slams the door, or the wind slams the door, but we assume somebody slammed it. You know, and then we can be in a fit for ten minutes, even though it was the wind. But we just assumed, you know, somebody was being mindless, wasn't paying attention. They have no respect for the container. Probably one of, probably one of the four-day yogis. <laughs> Because God knows all of the eight-day yogis are so mindful. The four-day yogis don't know what a difficult trip it is for us eight-day yogis to pretend like we got it all together. (laughs) Because the last thing we want to do is disappoint you. So we can pay attention to our aims, we can uh, pay attention to how the mind is affected, how the mind reacts to different arisings. It's just like such a wonderful science, such a wonderful study to take up. And it's such a humbling study because it really undermines the sense of self when we just see who we are is constantly arising due to other things that have happened. Somebody says something to us or looks at us or doesn't look at us or a memory comes up seemingly out of the blue and now we're in a funk or now we're excited. And the more we're just tracking cause and effect in this way, it's like, how can this be self? You know, it's just like such a so radically exposed to all of these inner and outer conditions that are just happening due to so many other inner and outer conditions. And then the last thing is really to to bring this balanced mind, pay attention to our strategies, our means, you know, like our practice, our attempts to do something. And just see what that's like. What that is. What are we doing? Like, for example, what are we doing to reach our goal, whatever that is, whether it's conscious goal or an unconscious goal? Here we are practicing for nibbana. So, what are we doing? What are we doing about that? You know. Or here we are practicing for, and you just fill in the blank. Um, and then, then to get interested in. So then what does the mind pick up? What strategy, what means does the mind pick up? Does, it, does that means feel right? Is it in alignment? Does it even connect with our aspiration? So maybe our aspiration isn't worth that much ultimately now that we look at it, but still a relevant question. You know, I really do want to get to bed, so am I doing something that leads to getting to bed? You know, or I just want people to like me. Or I just don't want to embarrass myself. So then what's our means? Like what are we doing about what we want? To get interested in that. And just to be really honest again. More than anything, you know, our practice is not idealistic. It's not imitative. And we're imitating something. It's really about Uh, a truthfulness, you know, balanced mind, a honed and heavy axe, is is really the way to see, experience, to understand things as they actually are, to be truthful, to be truthful about what the aspiration is, what the aim of the heart-mind is, to be truthful about how Our life is being co-authored by so many arisings, so many arising conditions. To see what the means, what strategies we take up. I mean, again, just speaking from my relationship with my wife, it is amazing the primitive means I take up with my wife. You know, just... uh, You know how that is with people that we're really familiar with, the petty ways and the silly things. Uh, And uh, I don't know where I was reading somewhere, and I think I mentioned it in one of my talks, uh, just about the mating habits of uh, other primates and people just uh, trying to understand better the sexual behavior of humans by studying our close relatives. And uh, so having read that, then I, I'm just noticing, like, just <laughs> <laughs> just the sort of ways I am with my partner. And, uh, you know, and the thing is, <clears throat> our mind, it doesn't like to be humiliated. So it just, it, it says things like, well, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm just being playful. But it's not, it's no different than, you know, whatever baboons do or gorillas do or chimpanzees do you know and how we you know sort of stimulate the interest of our mate Um, and uh, and just to kind of look at these different motivations and grounding our understanding in the reality of our lives like uh, being willing to be a force of nature and not having to be some ideal that our mind has constructed literally to torture ourselves by. You know, it's like, uh, I think one of the reasons we love watching these costume dramas, which I've watched more than my share of. I'm a big fan of BBC, and their you know, sort of Victorian dramas. And just to see, you know, how human beings can dress up our lives you know a little bit like tropical birds you know can dress up their lives and and all the pomp and all the and uh and just see that actually it's not we're just earthworms basically <laughs> really dressed up you know in terms of our behaviors <laughs> Now, the, the peace isn't, and the freedom isn't about uh, that sort of primal being. The peace comes from the abandonment of the falseness. It's really the letting go of the constructions that is the peace. You know, being aware that nature is freely moving, that there isn't any problem anywhere that's something we can really be and know so just to review that so you can play with this in your practice tonight and in the days ahead you know to be to bring that balance of interest and seeing things as nature or not taking things personally and the calm and the steadiness that comes from goodwill and from continuity right so the the steadiness, the calm, the samadhi, the heaviness of the acts comes from love and it comes from, specifically, love allows the mind to be continuous, to keep including whatever happens. And so that's the weight. It's like the mind's unbroken. It's not fragmented. It's it's solid, it's steady. And the sharpness is the idea initially and then the experience, that it's just nature, no center. It's the abandoning of wrong view, of the personality view or taking things personally. So that's the balance of mind and we can bring it and get interested in the means and the aims of the mind and the how the mind is constantly being affected. Just This happens, and then the mind's this way. This happens, and now the mind's that way. And there's nothing really we can do about that, that reactivity, except not be confused by it. Like, I can't help, if you do something right now, like if all of you yawned right now, I would have an emotional reaction. Now, the question isn't whether I'll have an emotional reaction. I will. The question is, will I be confused by the emotional reaction or not? Will I take it personally or will I see, say, of course, of course, this feeling of defensiveness and doubt has arisen. Of course, there's a tendency to take it personally. Of course, the practice is arising, you know, because i practiced a lot. So it's just everything can be just the movement of nature. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words, appreciate being here.